Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 530. My name is Minter Dialer, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. I'd like to give first a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review of this show on Apple Podcasts by MC Borelli91. Many thanks. So this week's interview is with John Rennie. John is a business leader, author, podcaster, and speaker. He's the co-founder, president, and CEO of Peak Demand Incorporated, a manufacturer of critical infrastructure products for electric utilities. He served as a US Naval officer in nuclear submarines and has close to 30 years leading in industrial businesses in North America. He's also the author of several best-selling books, including All in the Same Boat and I have the watch. In this interview with John, we discuss his pragmatic approach to leadership, why leadership is in crisis today, how to lead millennials and the younger generations, how to develop trust, dealing with adversity, the role of conversation, time, and handling the new conditions and demands at work. A truly interesting interview. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a wee moment, go and drop in a rating and review because that's the currency of podcasts. In any event, don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. John Rennie, how great to have you on my show. First of all, thank you for your service. I, I truly respect anybody who spent time in the military. And you were an officer in the Navy, United States Navy, uh, back in the 90s, uh, dealing with the, the Cold War situation. Uh, and uh, I was wondering how you came to choose the Navy. I've, you know, not having done military, I've always wondered, <laughs> how do you choose paratroopers, Air Force? I mean, sometimes it's, it's, you know, you don't have the eyesight or stuff like that, but your choice of the Navy. Yeah, you know, similar to you, I had uh, a grandfather in the Navy, which part of was the, the influence, and I had another grandfather who was in the Army. And both, you know, I was one of those curious kids that, that was just interested in their stories, because we were all born in the same town, my grandparents, my parents, uh, myself, we we're all born in the same town. And um, I had this curiosity of the world outside of, you know, the small town we grew up in, which was Manchester, New Hampshire, a small town, 100,000 people. But most people don't leave leave that town. And my both my grandfathers did. And they went into World War II. And I was sort of fascinated with their stories and what they did. And for some reason, um, I got into reading about the World War II submarine officers and the submarine crews and some of the, the missions they went on. And to me, I was fascinated. It was almost like... Um, people being fascinated with flying a jet plane or uh, being an astronaut. To me, underwater, being underwater and, and this, you know, being in an underwater warfare platform um, and the capabilities of them, it just to me, fascinated, was, was fascinating. And of course, you know, at the time the Cold War was on and submarines played a key part in the Cold War. And so, yeah, I, I as soon as I could figure out how to become a submarine officer, I, I I went in that direction. This was early on, so even before I I attended high school, I wanted to be a submarine officer. I spent my whole life trying to achieve that objective, my young life. Yeah, yeah. well, it's it's amazing. The the it's somewhat spooky. The the, the sonar sound and and there's definitely mystery in in the idea of the submarine and and having to be quiet and. And then 
fact that you are enclosed in a, in a thing with so many other men, as opposed to an airplane where you're sort of flying, you're liberal, but people don't like heights or people don't like the, the, the risk of the airplane. I mean, the risks everywhere, of course, but um, fascinating. And again, thank you for your service. So you have uh, obviously did a lot of leadership in the Navy. And as you write in your books and, and what you write in your blogs, you've done a lot of, you've practiced a lot of leadership, which is something I really appreciate. A lot of consultants who talk about leadership actually have never done any of it. Um, one of the things that struck me is you talk about the paradox of leadership. Uh, you, you, in, in the book that I read, I Have the Watch, you wrote about two different paradoxes. One of them was the fact that it's both simple and complex. And the second was that uh, you should have employees that feel that they did it by themselves and didn't actually even need a leader. Yeah. Tell us, tell us how you came to uh, view those as the fundamental complex uh, paradoxes of leadership. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you picked up on that, and, and that is, I, I I consider leadership like like learning chess. You know, you can learn the basic rules in a short amount of time. In a week, you can pretty much be playing a good game of chess, right? But it takes a lifetime to master it. And I would say leadership is the same way. I've I've spent thirty plus years as a student of leadership. I'm now working on my doctorate in leadership. And uh, I feel like every time I turn the page, there's something new I didn't know about and uh, I'm exposed to. So I think it's a lifelong journey to become really good at, uh, at leadership. And it's just like anything else. Um, you know, there was a rock band called Rush that was out of Canada. And Neil Peart was very famous as one of the best drummers in the world. And even before, even at the time of his death, he was still studying to become a better drummer. And I think leadership is that way. You can't just say, well, I'm a great leader you know, five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in, I think it's a constant lifelong journey to become better. And I think that's where that paradox uh, comes out of the idea that it's simple, but also complex at the same time. I love that. Just on that one, um, it makes me think of uh, the sport that I play called paddle tennis, which is not exactly yet popular in America, but it's coming quickly. Uh, that's for sure. And I have a new podcast with that. But um it's a game that's easy to play. The rules are so simple, but it's hard to be good at it. Mm. And, and uh, a lot of sports like for well, tennis or golf, for example, they're difficult. You can know the rules, yeah. but they're actually difficult <clears throat> to play early on. So you, there's like almost a barrier to entry outside of the fact you have to probably belong to some snobby club. But um, that, that idea of easy to start, but then it takes a lifetime, which leads me to the question, can you actually teach so you're doing a doctorate on leadership, but can you actually teach leadership if it's actually all about experience? Yeah, I think there is, there's a combination of it. I think that you can teach it, you can learn it. And, but I think just like anything else, it requires practice. So just like you can read a book about how to play a guitar, but it really takes picking up a guitar and actually playing the notes and practicing for you to get better at it. So there are fundamentals. Um, it's, there's a lot of human psychology involved in leadership. So you need to understand a little bit about that. Um, it's also great. Uh, it's great to learn from others. So reading uh, leadership experiences from other great leaders, I think helps us, gives us perspectives, tells us stories, sees we get to learn scenarios and, and to see which way the leader chose and why they chose that and any regrets they might have had along the way. So it's one of those things that you can learn, you can you can teach it, you can learn it, but it, but like anything else, you've got to really practice it to get better at it. So uh, I always encourage leaders, if you want to be a great leader, you need to practice leadership. And especially as we look at 
young people moving, moving, you know, we might have a new hire that has that has some potential and we, we see that. We want to give those, them those opportunities for them to practice leadership in a smaller project and maybe uh, have an opportunity to, to learn in a controlled fashion before we give them more and more responsibility. So I went to business school and I, I was nodding fiercely when you spoke about how they didn't teach me leadership in, <laughs> in school. Uh, it, it it strikes me and, and what you write about a lot of it actually is, is about mindset. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing an interview with a, a friend of mine who is a, a rather well-known celebrated French negotiator. Uh, and he does hostage crises and kidnappings and such like that. How important it was to know oneself mm-hmm. as part of it. And, it, you know, it's like, even before we start thinking about the tools of leadership, why is it that we don't actually teach or, or expose us more to the idea of knowing oneself first? Yeah, it's interesting that, that, that you picked up on that also in the book. And that is, you know, one of the things I do is I speak to a lot of uh, graduate students that are involved in MBA programs, international MBA programs. And I remember the first time I did it, I asked, like, how many leadership courses had they taken up to this point? Because they were in their final year. And um the student said, you're the first person to talk about leadership. And I thought, well, these people are, are moving on to become like, you know, captains of industry here. And this, these are, these were good universities. And uh, I was really surprised by that. And, um, you know, we do, we teach the, you know, the skills around leadership. So we teach accounting and operations and marketing and sales and, and, and the legal side of things, ethics, all that. But, you know, really what it comes down to leadership is a people business. It's about motivating people to get things done. And we seem to miss out on that really fundamental skill set that we need, you know, uh, leaders to have. And so, um, yeah, I was a little surprised by that. And the other thing is you mentioned, you know, to be good, to be a good leader, you know, uh, uh, and I say this in my books is that one of the things you have to do is lead yourself first. And I think part of that is, The way I look at it is as a leader, you're on stage. And and, and in the Navy, for example, I was on stage 24-7. So for three months at a time, I was the leader. And so there was no hiding from your responsibilities of that leader. So you're on stage all the time. But if your backstage is a mess, so behind the scenes, right, you're having problems with your relationship with your wife, you're overweight, um, you um, have a lot of health problems, your financial house isn't in order, all those things, these are going to affect your performance on stage. And I've seen so many leaders that are in position, they had so many problems behind the scenes that they couldn't be effective when they were on stage. And I, you know, you have to be strong as a leader, right? And so you've got to be able to take on a lot of the burdens that are happening with the business, with your people, and and you got to be strong to do that. And one of the ways you're strong is to take care of yourself, lead yourself first, make sure you're leading yourself correctly so that you can be there for your people. It's the, the old airplane analogy of put your mask on first before helping others. That's really important in leadership. Well, you know, it, it, taking a 35,000 view, foot view on that, you, know, you sometimes could think that's sort of being selfish. <clears throat> Yet, I mean, f- I, I, I fundamentally agree with you. And I, I've, I can't remember the general that said you have to make your bed every morning. A yeah. sort of discipline to to have the a domestic hygiene, and yet so often we sort of say, well, that's 
I don't want to hear you about your personal affairs, sir. This is you're at work to do this job, and I don't care about the fact that you may or may not have a happy relationship with your spouse. I don't care if you happen to have you're overweight. You know, you've you're here to do a job. So, in the environment we're creating today, you can't talk about that hmm. because that's that's kind of off limits. So yes, you you can model it, but it's almost like you're not. It's it's not it's a it's a land that we're not supposed to talk about. Mm. Well, I think I think you're right because a lot of bosses um, want you to bring one dimension to work, right? So we want your back, like if you're maybe a, an employee on a manufacturing plant, or we want your mind if you're uh, an attorney working for a big company or what have you. So we want one dimension there at work. But I think the best leaders. Uh, really encourage their employees to bring everything to work. And, and I try to, you know, I, I own my own manufacturing company. I bring myself to work every day. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I bring my full self to work. I'm the same at work as I am at home. And I think a lot of people aren't like that. So they put on an act, they put on a show. I see many bosses. I worked 22 years for three global companies. And I saw a lot of bosses who were playing a caricature of a, of a boss, like instead of, really bringing themselves to work, they were pretending to be a boss in the way that they were, the way they thought a boss should act. Like maybe it's based on, you know, uh, their experiences with past bosses, but they brought that, uh, that fake boss to work every day versus their real self. And I think when you are bringing your full self to work, when you're authentic and your people are, are authentic, I think you build better relationships and I think you build trust when you, when they see a person who's consistent uh, and who's their real self. I think the people that are fake, um, everybody knows it, you know, they sense it and they don't trust them because it's not, they don't seem like they're bringing their, their truth to, to work every day. Well, amen to all of that, John. <laughs> I, um, I in, in the way you were speaking, it makes my head go off in lots of little different directions, but I was just thinking, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, great film, of course, and uh, two out of three are bad, or at least, mm. you know, not, not, not complimentary. And, it, it kind of, and you talk about this, the fact that you bring your warts and all, and, and life is messy. And, and it, it, I was just thinking, well, maybe that is the right balance. Two thirds of life is not easy. It's, it's mm. not pretty. And you need to be able to embrace the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I talk about it a lot. I say that, um, you know, people are messy. So, you know, part of part of part of leadership is is you're you're responsible for 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 you know leading your group of people to get something difficult done, and 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 in that same token, people are messy, right? They're going to come to work with all sorts of past uh, history with bosses with work. They're going to have problems at home with their spouse, maybe their children, maybe they have some health issues. They are, are a messy uh, entity that you have to deal with, but they're also amazing and they can do amazing things. And so I think there are some bosses that say, I don't want to deal with the mess. I hear that a lot. I don't want to deal with the people issues of leadership. I just want to get things done. Well, if you want to get things done with people, you've got to deal with that messiness and you've got to really appreciate the messiness. And, you know, my employees, you know, uh, in my own company, they don't come to work 100% every day, right? They're, they're dealing with some issues outside of work every day. And 
but some days they're they're on fire and they're bringing more than you know my expectations. So I think being able to be patient with people and able you know and and to be able to let them be them true self their true selves at work, uh, I think is is a place where they recognize that you know they're they're appreciated even if they have a bad day, right? And and I think I had an employee for example um, that had a rough, he was rough in the mornings, right? You know, I, we would get together, I'd say good morning and he's, ah, he's just kind of miserable. But he was just one of those guys that just took a little while to get the engine warmed up. And by 10 o'clock in the morning, he was great. And by the end of the day, he was on fire, but that's just his personality. And I, once you recognize that, okay, that's just the way this person is. And, and so you learn how to manage them. You learn how to deal with them and, and you don't, you know, you don't get upset at that morning grumpiness, you know, it just, it's just, that's who, that's how he's wired and that's okay. Well, like the, I like to say the expression, it's okay not to be okay some days. Yeah. Uh, and, and thinking about the, the role of parents, if you see your child being grumpy in the morning, you often have this natural instinct to want to try to cheer him or her up. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, maybe as a captain of industry, when you have somebody who's coming into the office who's grumpy, that can impact the rest of your team. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about having a bad apple in your in your team, mm-hmm. and and how that having that sort of poor starting point could also be kind of a worm in the apple. So sometimes yeah. you have this urge, right? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's that's something, you know, um, I tend to be a little more forgiving maybe than more more leaders. I have a generally a four strikes and you're out kind of rule. So I try to work with people when they're, you know, there's behaviors or there's actions that are just inconsistent with our values. I really try to work with them to turn them around. But, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to let people go. We do have to fire people. It's not one of the more pleasant things that we do. But you know, here's here's the way I look at it. Um, Oftentimes, there are puzzle pieces that don't fit in our puzzle, right? They're a very unique puzzle piece, but they just don't fit into our, 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 our puzzle. And what I found, and this is consistent over 30 years of leading people, is when I let people go, they tend to find that puzzle. They, they work to find a place where they fit in better, where their puzzle piece fits perfect into that organization. A lot of times it's just, it's a puzzle piece that just doesn't fit into our puzzle. And I always try to make it work. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very patient with that, but ultimately um, we do have to find when there are certain people that just, whether it's behaviors, whether it's actions, whether it's um, uh, maybe activities that they're involved with, just something that doesn't fit with who we are, then we have to let them go. But again, oftentimes it's just to find the right fit. They're not, they're not a right organizational fit for us. Yeah. I've heard oftentimes this idea that, you know, I'm sorry, uh, we, we need to let you go. At least it's, it's not you, you're in the, it's not the right place for you. Do you ever talk about that jigsaw analogy uh, in the process of letting somebody go? I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, we started this company seven years ago and I hired uh, someone who worked for me in, in the corporate setting as my uh, CFO. And he couldn't make the transition to small company life. He kept wanting to build systems and processes that were bigger than- And wait for the two secretaries to do the photocopying for him. (laughs) Right. And it's like, no, no, we don't have those resources. We just need something that, you know, I need something in the moment. You know, I don't need something. uh, And and I think that that was a hard transition for a lot of us because many of us came from big companies is just learning how to be, to think like a small business 
uh, or a small company would, which is being fast and being flexible and, and fixing it along the way. He wanted to build systems. And so clearly it was not an, not an effort issue, not an intelligence issue. It was just a fit issue. Just didn't fit with, with, our, with our mindset. And, uh, and so me letting him go and given those opportunities to find something that was a better fit was the best thing that ever happened. He ended up finding a company that he was perfect fit for, and he's been able to grow uh, significantly since he left our company. So yeah, I, the puzzle analysis analogy is some, something I've always used. And I've always think about that when, when I'm struggling with an employee, is it, is it someone that just needs uh needs focus or, you know, needs recalibration or, you know, something or discussion, or maybe they're not aware of their issues, or is it someone that just isn't a, isn't a good fit? So we've been talking about teaching leadership and, and this idea of, of being able to learn it. If you take your, the John Rennie school of four strikes and you're out, <laughs> um, as opposed to for the non-baseball lovers, three strikes, um, is, is that not a just a question of mindset? And, and can anybody learn that mindset? The idea of listening to people and having humility, skills or attitudes that you talk about, write about, are, are these, can, can you teach humility? <laughs> it's a great, it's a great question. You know, humility is an interesting thing because ego is what gets us to these positions. So we need uh, our ego. Ego is important, right? So it gives us this, um, like, for example, starting a company seven years ago, ego was this uh, uh, this sense that I can do it. I've, I've achieved much in my career. I can do this as well. We need our egos, right, to get us to certain points. But when it comes to people, sometimes our ego gets in the way of getting the best ideas, uh, you know, for the business, put, you know, the best decisions, made. So I think part of, you know, I, when, I'll give you an example. When I first, I got my first manufacturing plant at 32 years old. So I was fairly young when they gave me a manufacturing plant and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had the corner office. I had about 140 employees. And the goal was to, for me to learn how to be a manufacturing leader, how to be a business leader. Um, but I remember thinking, wow, I have the corner office. I need to have all the answers. I am that guy. So I was beginning to play that caricature of a leader, like that, you know, the corner office has all the answers, right? But one of the things I realized uh, early on is that many of my employees had, had, most of them had more years at the company than I did, but many of them were older that had more years in the company than I had, you know, on, on earth, right? And so it was a little bit humbling thinking about that. And then who was I at 32 years old to tell them how to do things, right? They've been doing this for decades. And so when I sort of let go of, I have to have all the answers and recognize that all of the answers to run this business successfully exist within the four walls of this building. And my job was to sort of flesh those things out to be able to create the environment where the best ideas come out. And then the leader, as me being the leader, was to make the right decisions based on all those great ideas. So I think, you know, what I learned in that first three years of running a manufacturing plant was I didn't have to have all the answers, but I had to have the right questions and the willingness to listen to the answers 
of, of my experienced employees and the people that had that experience. And so I think that's where I learned a lot about humility during that first experience of, you know, that, you know, how can I, how can I think that I know more than somebody that had been on the shop floor for 30 years? You know, it's just, it's, I, you, you don't, <laughs> you know, and I think leaders will do better when they recognize that they have some talented employees that probably have a lot of built up knowledge and ideas that have never been, no one's ever asked for their opinion. And I had that conversation a lot with employees. They would say, you're the first manufacturing leader in, that's ever asked me my opinion. And I've been here 30 years. And I thought, how sad is that? <laughs> how sad is that? This is another human. This is someone with 30 years of experience in, in this, this industry. Why would you not tap into that knowledge, right? I think it's, I think I, I, I've, writ, I've written articles about this, but I believe that the experienced employee, the experienced employee, the, the person that's been there for decades is the, is the greatest untapped potential in most companies. We just don't spend time talking to them because they think, well, he's a welder or uh, he runs the paint line or she just uh, answers the phone. Really? <laughs> they've been a lot of times they've been thinking about the business uh, in different ways over the years and no one's ever really asked their opinion. I think when we do spend the time and listen, I think we find out there's an amazing tapestry of knowledge out there that exists that we can tap into. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler free about their books so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Well, I'm hoping that people who are listening can think that they can straightforward go towards that type of attitude instead of having to figure out. But there is this notion of imposter syndrome when you arrive. Mm. And until you've got the experience to say, well, I've actually been a leader for now X number of years, it seems sort of almost natural to feel like an imposter. And you see that a lot with women as well, who, who end up in roles and very rightfully, but they even have a worse element of it because I think sometimes they bring even less ego to the story. Mm. And, and that feeling of I'm, I'm not the right place or I'm not the right person. And so you, you still need to learn it. I want to, I want to dive into uh, a topic you write a lot about, which is that we are in today. And I, I suppose you're presumably talking more about the United States, but maybe it's worldwide uh, from your perspective, the crisis of leadership. Hmm. And, and to what extent this, why is this crisis of leadership happening more today than in the past? Because at the end of the day, we haven't really changed the way we do leadership, certainly not the way we teach leadership. What is it about our situation that's causing this crisis of leadership? Yeah, I picked up on the idea, you know, Angela Duckworth wrote uh, Grit. It's one of my favorite books. And um, book. she, she picked up on it. She talks a lot about, um, uh, you know, she touches in on introverts and people who are maybe math and science, or they might be technical experts. Uh, that maybe don't want to go into leadership. And she said that we, and I, and I agree with her, she says that we, we've we created um, a world where, where, you know, achieving leadership, getting these titles is, is celebrated. And so many people chase after that title 
because that um, they want to do it for for the social recognition. They want to do it for the money. They want to do it for the status. Uh, they want the corner office. They, you know, this is part of the achievement in life to tell, oh, I I run this company, or I'm the CEO, or I'm the CFO, or or what have you. And so many people go into leadership for the wrong reasons. So they're doing it for the money or the prestige or what have you. And those that go into leadership just for the, the accolades that go along with it or the, the trimmings that go along with it, the car, the bonus check, what have you, they're not the ones that actually get things done. And they're not the ones that are, that are willing to you know, roll up their sleeves and figure out how to, how, to, how to get the most out of people, get the most out of their business. Uh, it's really the ones that decide that they, you know, uh, the ones that go into the role of leadership because they want to make a difference, not that they want to make a bunch of money. Those are the ones that are actually making a difference. And so I think in society today, we we celebrate leadership and uh, and, and we have a lot of people that want to get into leadership for, for the wrong reasons. But then the other thing is this, is that we promote based on the wrong reasons as well. So, and, you know, I spent you know, two decades in, in working in corporate America. And what I saw was we take individual contributors who are pretty good at their individual roles. And we say, you're such a good engineer. We're going to make you engineering manager. You're such a good salesman. We're going to make you the sales manager. You're such a good accountant. You're going to make you and, and so on and so on. And so we promote people based on their individual contributions and not their leadership skills. And so uh, we don't promote them based on their demonstrated ability to lead teams. We take it more of their, their, their individual contributions. And so we end up promoting people, they get into the role and they get, they go back to what they're comfortable at doing, which is that individual contributor role. So many leaders think that, well, my job is just micromanage everybody. Since I'm the technical expert, I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody what to do. And they never make that true transition from individual contributor to leader. And I think that's the that's where we struggle is making that first transition. The first time that you have an opportunity to have a team working for you is where we need to make that transition and help people make that transition to leadership. But if I might, John, you and I are have been around the block a bit. <laughs> I don't believe that's any different than 30, 40, 50, probably even a hundred years ago. And so I have to believe, or I posit, that the crisis of leadership has almost more to do with the ones we're leading than the leadership itself. To the extent that if there's a crisis and the challenge is bigger today, what has changed? And what, what, what is making the leadership challenge a bigger issue today to fix? Well, I think, you know, I think it really comes down to, you know, what is the true desire of the individual. And I think that um, there, we want quick fixes, right? We want, and, and even corporations do that too. They want to put in the person that can get the quick fix. And so they're not looking for someone that's going to take the time to actually repair a business, repair the culture, repair the do the hard work to build that business up for, for sustained results. We're looking for quick fixes because we've got to, we've got the um, shareholders to take care of. We have, we need, you know, it's, everything's about profitability, right? So shareholder value is really critical. So we got to, we got to do whatever it takes in a short term 
to be able to get short-term results. And so we put in managers and leaders and we give them short-term, we got to get short-term results because we got to take care of the shareholders, right? And so we're not looking for that deep, true understanding of the business and being able to build it up. And, and that takes time. If you think about the best uh, sports coaches are the ones that have spent some time in the organization and build a team over over several years. And I think part of why uh, we're having the problem today is that is the short-term results. We're looking for that short-term results so that we can take care of the shareholders. And that that is more important than anything else. And, and if it means mass layoffs, as it, if it means um, uh, you know, paying people less than they should, if it means taking away benefits, then that's what we're going to do to be able to get that short-term results. I think that's probably part of that contributing factor, maybe today more than 30 years ago. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that, but I'm going to add to it and I'm going to add to it. <laughs> so the, the, the pushback is I worked on Wall Street in the 1980s. And I can tell you that we were pretty darn hungry for third quarter, first quarter results, second quarter results. So the quarterly pressure at shareholder level, I feel, is, is uh, somewhat similar, personally. And the fuse with which, uh, the shortness of the fuse, to use a military term perhaps, uh, that customers expect a return, is, is no longer acceptable to wait for a letter or a fax machine. You know, it has to be within the freaking half minute. And, and then you, you think of the employees, especially the millennials that you refer to in the book, they they won't even listen to a full song. Uh, mm. I mean, we used to listen to albums for God's sake back in the day. <laughs> you know, they when they when they are looking at an Instagram video, if it's not engaging within seconds, yeah. they're on to the next. So I go back to this idea that the context within which we're leading has created new expectations, new worries, and uh, I want to add one other piece to throw into it which I, I feel is, uh, I, and there are two elements to that perhaps one is, but the, the, the mental health piece. Mm. We're operating in a world where we now talk about these things. There's an enormous amount of awareness, uh, enormous talk about the triggers, the triggers that on the second piece can also be about words and concepts that maybe 30, 40 years ago, we just said, get on with it. Or, you know, what's wrong with that word? And, and nowadays, there's also another environment where we, we have to be very careful about what mm. we say. We have to be very careful about people's mental health. And, and I think that also is contributing to the challenge for today. Yeah, I think, I think part of that is we end up having, because, because as you said, there's a lot of worrisome things I can't say and what have you. And, uh, you know, and, and all these things are, we have a lot of, lot of managers who won't do anything, right? They, they don't, they're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to do anything. They're, they're, they want to just keep their jobs. And so we have a lot of people that, um, a lot of leaders who are just apathetic and they're just not doing anything because, and I found in, in my corporate career, many of the leaders that did nothing uh, tended to stay on. They, they tended to be less controversial than the people who are trying to, trying to make a difference and try to move things forward. But I think you touched on something that's really interesting because although, like I said, the shareholder value piece has been, was, has been since the 80s, has been a predominant focus of business. I think- Talk, talk to Gordon Gecko, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But post-pandemic, though, we're seeing a shift. And I think it's kind of interesting to see. And I think, um, I think 
you know, I think it's more an employee market. It's becoming more and more of an employee market where um, it's basically employees. There's there there's no reason now for employees to stay loyal to a company and to stay for for decades, right? There's no there's no there's no problem with moving around. We don't look at that as a problem on resumes nowadays. So the truth of the matter is, if you want to attract and retain the best people to to get things done, you've got to create an environment where people. Uh, like coming to work. They like the mission of the company. They like their boss who's willing to engage them and listen to them and take their ideas. And I think it's moving now more that if we want to have the best companies and have the best employees, then leadership is becoming more and more critical. Because if if you don't, like you said, with the millennials and, and younger generations, if you're not creating an environment where they feel like they can, they're achieving their goals in their life, and and they 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 appreciate the goals of the company. They're moving on, and and you know turnover is a huge expense to companies. So I think I think now more than ever, leadership is becoming more and more critical to be able to retain talent and to attract talent to the company. I think it's big becoming more more valuable than ever before. And in the same vein, I, of course, I'm based in Europe, and mm-hmm. although I I come to the states a fair amount. Uh, there's lots of things that are said in the press. And, um, and you talked about at the beginning, bringing your whole self to work, which I mm-hmm. something with which I, I fully subscribe. So part of me is having, for example, personal convictions. Mm-hmm. A part of me is, for example, I vote. Uh, so what part of that can one bring or should one bring to work? Does, does, does it, belie logic to talk about our political convictions because mm. i mean if i don't talk about that is that not not hiding me <laughs> yeah no it's a good it's a good question i know i would say this is that one of the things that i realized that i i i needed to make a change was after you know more than two decades in in the corporate world i felt like i was not bringing my full self to work. I felt like I wasn't doing the things with people, with employees that I wanted to do because I was trying to do, you know, you know, uh, toe the line, toe the corporate line. Be the corporate stiff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. The raises this month are going to be 0.2 or this year is 0.25% and it's graded on a curve and, and you have to have 90% of your employees below, you know, on the lowest level. And it's like, I can't live with these rules anymore. They, they're, they're, they're against my values. And so for me, I knew I had to leave corporate life because I actually left one big company for another one thinking it would be better. And it was exactly the same. So I was like, I'm done with corporate life. I need to start my own business. I need to be able to be in a place where I can bring my authentic self to work. So I would say when your values are in conflict, it might be a time to, to look for a different opportunity. You know, Because if, and again, if you're working for a big company, uh, they want managers who are going to implement the policy. They don't necessarily want leaders who are going to do things differently. So sometimes you get in those roles where, you know, what I found over the time, over 22 years, I realized that my, my, uh, how do I say my um, degrees of freedom were reduced every year to where I didn't have a lot of authority left. And so I found myself in a place where I wasn't interested in doing anymore, which was just play by the rules and uh, and don't 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 rock the boat. That's what I was being told to do, and I'm like, that's not who I am. So I think when we find ourselves in those positions, we need to absolutely look for 
opportunities where we're a better fit. Now, that being said, as far as political, religious, and these sort of things, this is your whole self. This is who you are. But that's not something I, I necessarily bring to work every day because I do think it can affect people. Um, and, and really, it's, it's like I don't, anything I do on social media, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm apolitical. I could, and, I, and as a person, I'm not that political either. And it's because I, th- I believe that both, both, you know, with your left leaning or right leaning, you need leadership training. So I think I isolate a group if I get too political one way or the other. So I just don't do it. And I don't do it on a, on a religious basis either. Well, you do talk about Chick-fil-A. And if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> uh, I, they have quite a, a politically oriented leadership and seem yeah. to be doing a good job. So I, I'm always curious about that. And, and I know that in the hot waters of the United States, where there's a litigious and very combative ambiance, mm. it, it can be treacherous. But I'm always intrigued by this idea of the whole self, but not that piece. Sort of like, I'm going to come one-legged, but uh, the rest of it is full. Yeah, so the Chick-fil-A is an interesting story because their story is about performance. If you look store to store compared to all their rivals, they, they, they blow them out of the water. So the story is, well, how is that possible? And how do they do it? And how they do it is people. You know, they, their founder said that we're not in the chicken business, we're in the people business. And I think that is the element that I, I'm interested in. Um, yeah, there's some, they are, they have a Christian, the founder was a Christian and I recognize that, but that's not the, the exciting piece to me. To me is there's something they're doing differently. And what is that? And I think that's the, that's, a, that's the piece that's in, more interesting to me. And I think today we're spending way too much time trying to score political points. And, uh, what, what team are you on? Are you, you know, and I, and I'm tired of that, to be honest, you know, I, I think there's, you know, we all belong to the same human race. And I think we need to be treating each other with respect. And that's a big part of, you know, the talk. Number one principle of my company is we treat each other with respect. And that means uh, I don't necessarily care about your political or or whatever your, your views are. That's not important to me. Right. Well, it's and, that we and furthermore, don't bring them to work, I'm guessing. Yeah, what, but I don't, it's... I'll give you an example. So COVID, COVID hits, right? And so huh. there's a myriad of, of, of ways you can react. There's the people with that are getting triple and quadruple vaxxed. There's people wearing masks. There's people that say, oh, it's a scam and, and what have you. In my, fa- in my business, we did not have a rule with respect to masking. And we didn't have a rule with respect to vaxxing. So we said, it's your choice. But here's the deal. Why we're in the office, we're going to keep social distance. We're going to keep separated and we're not going to, and we had a big enough facility where we could do that. And uh, if you want to wear a mask, please wear a mask. If, if that's important to you, if, if you don't want to wear a mask, you don't have to wear a mask. And so I think, I think sometimes we just need to be a little more open because I think some of these things are heated and they're more political. They're trying to score points. They're, they're very, um, tribal, you know, you're, I'm, this is my tribe. This is your tribe. And I try not to get involved with too, too much of that. But it feels for me and what I write about is that it, it is linked to an existential mm. element. And, and in today's world, and, and I combine that with the mental health issues, mm, this, yeah. this is a, a, a there's a, a role that businesses have to play in this. And, and, and it's almost like you can't, in certain, certain cases, certain causes, can't not talk about them. 
because if you mm-hmm. don't, then you're taken for being an adversary. Speaking of adversary, or uh, mm-hmm. I want to, you, you had several other things which I react. One of them was you talked about the the uh, four criteria for an unstoppable team, and the one that stood out for me, John, was that they have proved themselves through adversity. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked that one. Please elaborate just a little bit on that one for us. Yeah, it's something that resonates with me, and I don't know it's because of the my time in the service or just. The, my fa- the, the the family I grew up in, my the influences in my life, but I've always believed in in hard work, perseverance, and overcoming difficulties. And I, it's the primary question I ask when I'm when I'm bringing on new employees is is tell me something that you've you've some difficulty you overcame in your life, and and I want to know you know uh, I want to understand where your resilience is at. So uh, how did you get through difficult times, and 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 why did you do what you did and how did you overcome that? So uh, I found that those employees over the years tend to be the ones that don't quit when things get hard. They, they've got another gear where, where other employees don't. And so it's the it's maybe the veteran that served two combat tours. It's the, um, the single mom that put herself through college uh, working, you know, uh, you know, you know, while she was working. It's the it's sometimes the, the the tool and die maker that that has an associate degree but spends so much time perfecting uh, his craft. The, these are the people I want on my team. I want to I want to have people that have persistence and and you know and again I I'm influenced too by Angela Duckworth's work on grit. I just really truly believe that is it because if I look at my life, uh, my life is not one of of high intelligence, right? I came from a blue collar family first to go to college. Um, and yet I've been able to do a lot in my life, but it's not because I'm particularly gifted in, in intelligence, but it's been, I don't give up. I just work hard, persevere and, um, you know, and, and overcome whatever difficulties comes, comes my way. And I've had a chance to have an extraordinary life because of it. And so I'm looking for those people that are like that, that are willing to do what it takes when things get rough. Well, I might add, you are studying for a doctorate, um, so <laughs> not to be snuffed at, John. The, the the other comment I had was about the jerks. No jerks mm. at work. And, um, of course, s- some people don't really know what a jerk is. They, they <laughs> are, so they don't recognize it. But the one that stuck out for me and one I really appreciated, and yet complicated, certainly in certain cultures, is the idea of respecting another's time. Mm. In certain cultures, uh, the boss comes late because my time is more important than yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just, I just, I, it drives me bloody bonkers not showing mm. up on time. And of course, then I'm starting to think, well, that's my problem too, right? You know, like at some level, I have to be self-aware that this is my 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 relationship with time, and and when I see someone not showing up on time for me. Like ugh, I cuss them out in my mind. Of course, they might have a legitimate reason, but you know I have to manage my own time. But uh, tell us your experience of how. I mean, because I, I have to imagine in the military, time is rather important. And and is that where that came from, or or tell me how else you you approach it? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, you know, it's funny because I, one of the one of the advantages of hiring veterans I found is they're on time, so <laughs> they're always five minutes early, and and that's certainly baked into who I am as a person. But I think it's just the idea of respecting others' uh, time. You know, it, it's as simple as, for example, <clears throat> this morning I had employees coming in here. 
I've, I've been out of the office for two days with the, with our Independence Day celebration. And uh, so I'm back in, I've got a lot to do. My employees come in and what do I do? I could be trying to multitask, right? Trying to do a little bit of email and then listening. No, I, I put us and, and I've got anxiety. I got all these things I got to get done to this morning. Right. And I could say, um, I'll try to do both things, but I think part of respecting others' time is 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 giving them your presence and be and and then listening to them and not multitasking. That that's part of it. So showing up on time, treating their time with respect, treating their attention with respect, putting aside what you're doing, listening truly, listening to them, asking questions when they come in and giving them that time. And then there's other times where I've got to get the work done. So I might have to shut the door and it, and every, and I've told my employees if I'm doing that, cause I got to work on something. It's not that I don't love you. I just got, I got to have to have some stuff done. But I think when you're in the presence of your employees, you really want to give them their full attention. And that, that is, that's about respect as well. So it's respecting their time, respecting their, uh, and that's probably one of the most important things that young leaders get wrong is this idea of being present. And uh, you've got to be around. You've got to see what they're up to. You have to go to where they work. You have to show up. You have to listen. You have to be curious. And um, and that's when you're going to build those relationships. You're going to build the trust. When you come in and say, hey, we've got to do this big project, They, you have you built a relationship already. So they know who you are. They know. And even when you screw up, if you build a relationship with an employee, even when you make a mistake as a leader, they're much more forgiving than if you just you know, you don't, you don't have a relationship with them. So building that relationship is really critical. And that comes with respecting their, their time, their attention, their efforts, for sure. Uh, it makes me consider how I think sometimes it's, it's sometimes do back in the other way. And, and I think of how employees should sometimes have empathy for the stress that a leader has mm. to have. It's almost yeah. like they're not allowed to because the boss, well, he's getting paid more anyway, or, but it doesn't always come back that way. In any event, John, been a lovely uh, chat with you talking about leadership, talking about the Navy, military, uh, good values and, and uh, love and respect. Some lovely words to be having mm. on my podcast. Tell us how, uh, tell other people listening who, uh, how they could catch your books, see your writings, your, your blogs, catch up with a little bit more about your, the world of John Rennie. <laughs> well, everything's on johnsrenny.com. And um, there you'll find links to my social media, my books. I have a podcast called Deep Leadership that you can find there. And uh, yeah, all things John Rennie is on johnsrenny.com. And uh, yeah, so check it out. Many thanks, John. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of 
a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust is a reason. Still, I won't tell the lie. I sit here passively, hope for your respect, anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe I tell myself. In me lying. I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man competitions innate. A convinced. Of a woman, despise revenges and struggle with deceit. Live for the challenge, so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man hearing these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man admit to the test. I'm a convinced man.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.